All right, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates on tonight's show of a very special guest. His name is Dr. Richard Creighton, and he just published a book on May 11th, 2021. The title of that book is Never Trump, How How and Why Obsessional Elites Are Undermining America. And this is not his first book. He also published a book last year, 2020, titled Breakdown, How Progressive Ideology is Eroding Morality and Redefining Mental Health in America. Dr. Creighton was born in New York City, received a BA and MS in chemical physics from New York University, and attended Jefferson Medical College before joining the staff of the Massachusetts General Hospital in pulmonary medicine, pathology, and psychiatry. He is certified in both Freudian and Jungian psychology and has published and lectured widely on a variety of topics, including lung disease, infectious disease pathology, the placebo response, and psychosomatic disorders. He is the recipient of the Gradiva Prize for Best Paper in Psychoanalysis in 1998, the Upshaw Prize for Cancer Research, and the Small Prize from Harvard University for Excellence in Religious Studies. But uh, again, the title of this book is Never Trump. Very important book, read through it, and I think it really goes into and clarifies the psychology of these people who are never Trumpers or who have uh, this kind of anti-Trump syndrome. And uh, he can talk more about that in detail. So Dr. Richard Creighton, are you there? Uh, Yes, I am. And thank you for the introduction. Awesome. Well, thanks for agreeing to the interview. For people may not have heard your background, can you talk about your background in psychology and what led you to put together this book, Never Trump? Uh, sure. Now, I've got a fairly eclectic uh, background and training, as you mentioned in your introduction. I'm a physician, uh, specifically I'm a pulmonary physician, but I'm also trained in psychiatry and in psychoanalysis, both Freudian and, and Jungian psychology. And uh, I've been working at Massachusetts General Hospital in, in Boston, which is part of Harvard Medical School. Uh, for over 40 years. And there were a number of things that I noticed uh, over the years that were obviously changing, uh, both in terms of the politics of the institution and in terms of the psychology of the trainees. Uh, uh, And these were things that, to some extent, I found to be problematic. And so I've spent a a fair amount of time, at least the last several years now, uh, really looking at the history of ideas uh, that's led to the current progressive culture, as well as uh, trying to correlate that with what I understand about human psychology and how that actually feeds into what's occurring today. So there are many things that are occurring on the political scene and the cultural scene uh, some of them have to do purely, I think, with with politics. However, ult- ultimately, everything does boil down to uh, psychology, either individual psychology or collective psychology. So I think in some respects, it's an area that's been largely ignored uh, through a lack of either expertise or a lack of diversity, actually, within the uh, psychiatric and psychotherapeutic community, which is almost entirely progressively oriented at this point in time. And I actually have another book that addresses that specifically. But at any rate, uh, one of the things that was noted uh, back in the 1970s is that we were becoming increasingly what might be termed a narcissistic culture. That is a culture that's uh, oriented towards the entitlement and uh, fulfilling the needs uh, of the individual. 
and that was Christopher Lash, who, who wrote a, a very interesting and important book on that topic. But I've also noticed that in addition to the increasing narcissism that we see in society, it's also an increasingly obsessional component to it. And what I mean by that is there's an increasing uh, element in the psychology of individuals that, that strives towards perfectionism and also is adverse to any type of confrontation or risk. And I think we're seeing that today in what's playing out uh, with the controversy surrounding the COVID vaccines and, and, and lockdowns and the like. So that change, uh, it, it has been occurring obviously over, over decades, but when you really dig into it, it probably starts all the way back in the 18th century and maybe even a bit before uh, with the breakdown of religious structures uh, within society. And I think one of the things that we're really seeing today is that individuals are in their quest for meaning uh, are having difficulty finding systems uh, that they can hang their head on. Uh, religion seems to have been largely ignored or, or abandoned by much of the much of the people, particularly on the left, but really across across society. And so, what you've seen uh, coming uh, up to replace it largely uh, is these uh, ideas that uh, originated uh, in the. 19th century of progressivism that started with the ideas of the philosopher Hegel and were put into practice, at least in this country, politically by Woodrow Wilson and, and really uh, made perhaps more prominent by the Roosevelt administration during the 30s and, and, and 40s of, of the 20th century. Okay, please continue. And, no, sure. So uh, I think what we're what we're seeing when when you actually uh, spend time around uh, individuals uh, who espouse progressive beliefs is that they're at some level fairly anxious, uh, perfectionistic, and as I said, averse to risk, uh, and they're also extremely concerned with control. So control psychologically is one of the ways that we deal with anxiety. And if you're dealing with a fairly large amount of it, which I think is true of much of society today, uh, the need or the wish to control the behaviors of others uh, becomes fairly prominent. And the reason the book is entitled Never Trump is that uh, Trump was really in many respects antithetical to this way of thinking. Uh, we tend to think of him as make America first or, or, or somewhat neoconservative in his thinking. But in many respects, as an individual, uh, he was the, uh, the, the ultimate uh, antithesis of the controlled individual, if, if, you can, if I can put it that way. Certainly not averse to risk, certainly not afraid to uh, confront things, certainly not afraid to speak his mind. And I think this infuriated uh, the progressive culture that actually has been running this country now, certainly uh, uh, for, for many years and uh, became even more prominent in their level of control under the Obama-Biden administration. Right. It was like a radical change from Obama-Biden to Trump. So you can see how peaked or how uh, perturbed they were by just Trump speaking his mind and really contradicting a lot of their ideology. Well, not only contradicting their ideology, but I think showing a level of courage and competence that none of them are capable of achieving. 
And what we're seeing today, you know, with respect to what's going on in Afghanistan is a very good example of that. The people who are running this country, who are all part of the progressive elite, uh, really have very little in the way of competence. And, you know, and, and I noticed this at the hospital I worked at as well. They were very bright people. There was no question about that. But their ability to, uh, as they say, walk in, uh, and chew gum at the same time was really impaired. Uh, and so Trump, not only was he antithetical to their values, uh, but I think he made them embarrassed at some level that they're unable to acknowledge consciously uh, that uh, they're unable to display the level of courage uh, that someone like Trump can. Uh, and, and, you know, that's to, to be ashamed of oneself is really problematic. And it leads to the psychological phenomena of what we call projection, which I think people have caught on to. And that is much of what you hear from the democratic progressive elite uh, are, are projections onto the conservative Trump supporters uh, uh, of things that they're actually thinking and doing themselves and unable to uh, acknowledge or accept about themselves. So there's, there's a large piece of unconsciousness that's taking place here, and it's, it's truly problematic. Uh, and this, this phenomenon of projection, uh, Carl Jung, who is one of the people who, who uh, is the basis of my training, uh, really back in the 1950s and 1960s, said is going to be probably the most problematic uh, issue confronting the world. Because if people can't get a hold uh, on their own projections and can't take responsibility for their actions, uh, this is what really leads to hostilities and ultimately to wars. So, you know, it, it's really a problematic situation at this point. No, it really is. And you can see that almost the responses. And I, you mentioned Alinsky, where he deliberately says, blame them for what you're doing. So it's almost like a, uh, a political projection in that psychological sense. But they're doing that. And uh, I think that there's other. Can you kind of expand upon the ideas of obsessionality? And one of them was was this kind of idea of control. Can you talk more about that? Yes, it, it's part of, you know, if you if you look at what they call the phenomenology, if you will, the, the, the characteristics that you see in obsessional personalities, and this was work, worked out in, in the early 1900s or even before that in the late 1800s. Uh, control is, is really one of the aspects, as I've mentioned, that uh, almost is always a, a pre predominant aspect of the personality of, of the obsessional. And it seems to be driven by, uh, again, uh, anxiety. So as you know, if you're, if you're living with some degree of internal chaos, uh, the uh, desire is to control the things around you because it's not recognized as coming from uh, inside of you. It's, it's seen somehow as being a, a dangerous risk coming from outside of you. And again, this type of rigid personality, uh, which includes uh, the obsessional personality as well as the paranoid personality, I mean, that's another piece. You know, when, when projections become extreme, uh, individuals become what we term paranoid. And paranoia is very dangerous. You know, ask any policeman you know, who has to deal with someone with a paranoid personality because they don't recognize that the what's threatening them is, is coming from within them. They always projected onto something around them. And I think you see a lot of that at this point in, in the attitudes of the government, uh, the, the current democratic progressive government uh, towards the, the Trump supporters. 
the idea of putting them on, on lists as though they're enemies of the state. Well, they're not enemies of the state. I mean, that they're, they're their fellow citizens, but they see them as truly dangerous. You know, and, and I think it was uh, basically reified or, or put into actual practice uh, with the January 6th uh, protests, and I'm not going to call them an insurrection. I'm going to call them a protest because that's indeed what they were. But I think the people in, in, in the government not only saw it as a political opportunity, but I think they're truly frightened. And they're frightened because their psychology is obsessional and at this point paranoid. Right. And you kind of also talk about their outlook. I think the intro you mentioned, uh, Thomas Sowell, and the difference in views, the constrained and unconstrained visions. Can you expand upon that? Yes. Well, again, uh, this comes out of the uh, Enlightenment, essentially. But the constrained vision is really the type of vision that one might uh, apply or, or, or ascribe to a, a Judeo-Christian morality. It's the idea that you know there are limits to the human personality, uh, that you know we're not perfect beings and that one needs to have a system of, of, of laws in order to uh, make sure that one's rights are not infringed upon. The unconstrained personality has this, again, this concept of uh, perfectionism, but it's, again, it's, it's, it's a truly humanist uh, psychology which has no place for religion. So the ultimate goal is for man to perfect himself. And the idea that man can perfect himself has never been proven. Uh, to be the case and anytime it's been tried in, in, in communist Russia or, or in any of the other socialist regimes uh, that we've seen crop up in the, in the 20th century. So it, it's an ideology that, that's removed from reality. And you know, the idea that anything can be truly unconstrained uh, is uh, in practice something that just doesn't work. Uh, but that's what we're seeing today in the breakdown of the legal system. And again, the breakdown of the legal system uh, essentially is just a reflection of the breakdown of religious values in the country. And you talk about how this kind of progressivism actually closely resembles a fundamentalist religion, replacing our traditional Judeo-Christian values. Can you talk about how progressivism uh, has parallels with obsessionality? Well, again, let, let me let me start with your fir the first part of your, okay. your question. And, and that is, again, it, people have uh, what one might call archetypally or, you know, in, inherently a need to produce some sort of meaning uh, in their life. And again, the structures that provided meaning up until at least the 19th century for virtually everybody were whatever religious system one ascribed to. Uh, with the breakdown of, of religious systems, you have individuals who still have this archetypal uh, need and drive to produce meaning, but they have to do it through alternative structures. And the alternative structure at some level has been uh, secular humanism. And secular humanism has given rise, if you will, uh, to progressivism. And the need to control, which comes out of uh, this, even the, even the basic idea of religions, uh, is closely allied with that. So the obsessional personality believes that as a, as a human being, they're in control not only of their own lives, uh, but of nature. 
uh, but of the lives of the people around them. Uh, and, and this is, you know, is essentially the progressive ideology. And, you know, it just, it, it, it's, it's a wonderful idea, but it, it, it's just not true. And it has, no, it has no basis in truth. And it certainly has no basis practically in the history of ideas or in the history of the world. So we're, t we're talking about people now who are unhinged from essentially everything. Uh, and that's a dangerous situation. Right. So they're just not basing anything on the past. They reject the past. They reject that wisdom of the past. It's pretty remarkable. And I, I want to repeat this quote before we get too far into the conversation, because it's, I think, very trenchant, very apropos is Young stating, quote, loss of roots and lack of tradition, neuroticize the masses and prepare them for collective hysteria. Collective hysteria calls for collective therapy, which consists in abolition of liberty and terrorization which I think we're seeing played out today. And both Freud and Jung, who you studied, were afraid of, of kind of psychology of groups and things like that. Can you discuss that within the context of your book? Yeah, that, that, that's absolutely true. They, they had a concern with the psychology of the mobs. They, they thought that the ideas that emerged uh, from, from crowds or mobs essentially were infectious. Uh, so ideas uh, just spread uh, almost like an infectious disease, and they're, they're not—they weren't tested, and they weren't necessarily uh, again given any boundaries. Uh, and, and when when that occurs, you 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 get events like one sees one saw in the French Revolution, and then ultimately, as as they become increasingly chaotic through mob hysteria. Uh, you, you see the need for some type of tyrannical overrule uh, to control everything. And, you know, that's the, the natural direction of where this goes. Uh, and you, you state in your book that the after the French Revolution and the terror, then it was Napoleon being in control, right? Right. And, and, and it will be this. And it's been the same everywhere. And, you know, this is the, the archetypal progression of events as you get this breakdown of the conservative traditions, you, you develop this type of mob hysteria, which ultimately calls for some type of autocratic or totalitarian rule. Yeah, I mean, all Americans should be very, very uh, concerned and very, you know, cognizant of what happens in the past. And I think you also, I mean, you and in your intro to the book, you talk about how teaching has changed this is all part of this kind of loss of you uh, talk about the American ethos. Like you see this because of that loss, you see this kind of new kind of political correct religion taking place. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. I and mean, where it becomes complicated, and I, 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 I can't get into all of it because I don't even claim to know all of it. But the uh, pedagogical uh, approach, the, the ways of teaching, uh, that's certainly one of the important uh, goals of, of progressive ideology to control uh, what individuals are taught. But it's also uh, also a goal uh, within the socialist communist uh, ideology. So there are all types of things at play at this point. It's like a perfect storm between uh, communist uh, ideology, progressive ideology, uh, corporate uh, disingenuity uh, out of their own greed, 
in order to uh, promote this type of wokeness uh, within society. So all these things are coming together in a way that's going to be very difficult to defend against unless people wake up and really uh, forcefully put an end to it. Yeah, and yeah, I think you mentioned the 1619 Project, BLM. You talk about, you know, this kind of, this even training at, at academic institutions where, you know, you want to make sure the outcomes are fair, supposedly, according to them. Um, so what is your kind of view of the change? You have a, you have a chapter or a section of the book about kind of law and religion in America. What do you think about this obsessional outlook and how it's changed religion and, and uh, our society? Well, you know, th th there's, there's two views of, uh, two utopian views, if you will. Uh, one is a perfectionism uh, that is never attainable, uh, that essentially breaks down uh, what transpires, or morality, I should say, breaks it down into what is good and what is evil. Uh, you know, it becomes completely polarized. Uh, that's 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 a perfectionist, perfectionistic and obsessional mindset, and it's the progressive mindset at this point. Uh, and it's one of the reasons uh, the Trump Trump and his supporters have been demonized uh, by the progressive left. It, it's not just that they have another point of view; that point of view is seen as evil. Uh, the other view, which is is probably a great deal healthier, and uh, certainly something that still something important to aspire to is one of wholeness, which includes the good and the bad at some level and allows them to have some type of uh, di dialectic uh, within society and within one's own individual mind. Uh, so what we're, what we're seeing now is something that's oh, uh, very close to the radical dualism that one sees in apocalyptic religious sects, you know, in messianic sects, where we, one side is good and the other side is completely evil. And obviously, if, if you're on the side that's evil and the side that thinks they're good has the upper hand, you're in trouble. And that's why we're seeing people being canceled. Uh, and this is at all levels of society. It's certainly within all the major institutions. It was true in, in, in academia. It's true in the hospital systems. Uh, that I worked in. It's true in the law schools now. It's true everywhere. And so uh, something needs to be done. Uh, people need to stop allowing themselves to be demonized uh, and to stand up and uh, not accept it. Yeah, it takes a lot of courage. And I mean, you talk in the book kind of like how the, the overarching control of progressives has made people want to just follow along without um, becoming singular or outside of that system. Like it's become its own, it, it's self-perpetuating. People just don't want to buck against it. And I think that's why that it's, it's very dangerous to stand up and say something, even in all those environments, because then you're canceled and then you're also kind of out of the system. So I think that that's, it's a very difficult situation. Can you talk about how technology and some of these social media has affected, uh, and with the, this kind of obsessionality, how it's affected our culture? Oh, absolutely, because I think that is probably the key element. You know, I think before the digital age, one could pretty much go about one's business uh, without anyone knowing what you were doing. <laughs> 
Uh, so there was a, a certain freedom in having a certain uh, a level of, of privacy, if you will, uh, about your life, you know, privacy or even secrecy. You know, it's whatever you did was your business. Uh, now everything's online and every institution has everyone plugged in in that way. So you can't go from one room to the other without it being registered somewhere on a computer. You know, anytime, you know, one of the things that I dealt with, uh, and I take this up in another book that I'm writing now about the medical system, uh, is that the introduction, particularly by the Obama administration, of the electronic medical record, uh, which at some level sounds great because everyone has access to uh, people's information if doctors need to share it. But on the other hand, it's everything you do now is, is monitored. Uh, and all your decisions, all your interactions are being are being observed. And uh, there's feedback about it. So uh, it, it's no longer the, the privacy that used to take place between a patient and their physician. Uh, there's a third party that's basically looking over your shoulder all the time now. And at this point, there's virtually nothing that we can do about it. And, you know, with, with everybody on social media and hooked into their computers 24 hours a day, uh, you know, the government has uh, the capacity and, and corporations as well have the capacity to monitor virtually everything you say and do. And that gives them a level of control that they've never had before. This is, this is an obsessional, you know, dream come true. <laughs> you know, they have, they know everything about you. And you see how they're using it now in, in communist China. Uh, to give people social credit scores because they know where you are and they know what you do. And this is new. And this is a, a huge problem. Right. And it's almost like there's an unstated social credit score, whether you like it or not. They may not have it in the, a firm statement, but people are going through old people, the people's Facebook pages 10 years ago to see what they said on Twitter and everything. And I've, I've been docked so many times and sniffed out and people are just trying to find something that they can cancel. Sure. Uh, well, I've had, I've, I've had the same uh, experience, but you know, it's like Benjamin Franklin said, you know, if, if you don't hang together, you're going to hang separately. And I, I think people need to begin to recognize that, that, you know, people are going to have to resist this as a group because as individuals, they will just pick you off one, one after the other. No, it's very true. And they're doing it right now, for, no doubt about it. Um, Lee Veltman from the chat says he's, he's curious about what your thoughts are on Cambridge Analytics. I don't know if it really plays into this, maybe the tech sen sensibility. Are you familiar with Cambridge Analytics? Uh, you know, not not in any depth. You know, I, I mean, I recognize they played a role in, in, in the previous elections, uh, but it's probably not an area I can discuss with any expertise. And, um, I mean, you talk about, I mean, I think that this elite now that are con really controlling us are canceling people. Can you talk about their involvement in the kind of current culture wars? Oh, sure. Uh, you know, I mean, they, they are one side of the culture war. And it's interesting, you know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, if, if you work in an educational system, uh, you, you see how this uh, develops. You know, so I, I worked at Harvard, and I, as I mentioned, I, you know, I, I saw the changes uh, in the type of medical student and type of resident and intern, et cetera, uh, who, would, who were coming through the system 
over the years. And one of the things that's, that's happened is, again, it's become so competitive uh, for those in the elite class to you know, get into the Ivy League school. So as you know, you know and, and that's kind of what you need to be able to do at this point to succeed at the higher levels of society. Uh, so, I mean, this begins in, in, in preschool, you know, the competition to, you know, get into a, a, a nursery school, to get into a kindergarten, to get into the correct private school, to get into the correct college. And there's no room uh, for error for these kids. And their parents, you know, you know, like helicopter parents, you know, are around them constantly. So there's, there's very little room for mistakes. So they are perfectionistic. Uh, and they really can't tolerate uh, the idea of making a mistake. I'll tell you, one of the interesting things I saw over the years when I started uh, in the medical profession during the training, when, when the professor would ask a question, hands would shoot up in the air and people would be competing with each other to get the right answer. <laughs> uh, by the time the 1980s, certainly by the 1990s arrived, you would teach a class and you would ask a question and no one, no one would volunteer an answer because they were all totally afraid that they might get the wrong answer. And so one of the things that occurs uh, you know, in, 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 the, in these groups is that they develop an enormous sensitivity towards each other to not embarrass themselves or not to embarrass each other. And I think that's, again, part of what you saw uh, with respect to their, uh, their their vehement hatred towards Trump, because they felt he was he he was a a risk to their well being, you know he, he was the type of person who might insult you, and to be insulted is is the ultimate uh, in, in terms of the fear of these people and the elites. Yeah, it is remarkable. I, the the Trump derangement syndrome really was a syndrome, and it, it was really unique. I never really experienced anything like that, that kind of fevered uh, outrage all the time. That was that outrage machine was constantly going. Do you, I mean, one of the interesting things you said about these obsessional types is they, they actually are perfectionists, but they also create situations with unsuccessful outcomes. Can you uh, expand on that? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting phenomenon. It's been recognized for, for many, many years that there tends to be an element of masochism and self-defeating self-defeating behaviors amongst these people. Uh, the, I think there is a lot of self-hatred uh, amongst obsessionals and amongst the elite. You know, I, I think they actually hate their lives at some level. And, and hate who they've become because they really have no freedom. You know, they've sacrificed their freedom for perfectionism. Uh, it's impossible to be free and perfect at the same time. Yeah. The other element, you know, which is important is the whole issue of uh, victimization within the culture. And, and so whether it be uh, gender related or race related, uh, the idea that you know large elements in society are, are, are victims and have become professional victims, I think uh, you know Trump and maybe some of his supporters as well uh, actually looked at victimization for what it was, which is an unhealthy uh, approach to 
to to life and, and not and not a mode of success. So I think uh, women and and certainly some people of color uh, really felt that their status as victims was threatened by Trump and Trumpism, uh, that they wouldn't be supported in their their constant. Uh, desires to be recognized as a victimized group that's now empowered through their victimization. All right. And so we're at this kind of situation with uh, Biden and Kamala Harris. Where, what do you see in the, the near to you know future of this country, considering these obsessional elites are now in control? Well, I'll, I'll say this much. You know, there, there was the... Uh, Goldwater rule that was set up that people weren't supposed to make comments about the health, either mental or physical health of an individual if you hadn't examined them. But you don't have to be a physician to recognize that Joe Biden is suffering from some sort of cognitive uh, impairment. I mean, this is clearly someone who's not working uh, at the level that they need to be to be president of the United States. Kamala Harris is just totally unqualified to be vice president or to be president. So it's a truly problematic situation that we're looking at here. Uh, The leadership is is just not there. And I think it's not going to be very long if it it hasn't occurred already for forces outside of the country to recognize that, which I'm, I'm, I'm sure they have. Uh, and I think we're in for I don't know what. I'm not sure the country can survive another three years or more of, of this current administration. Yeah, no, it's a very scary situation. Um, yeah, and I think you yeah, agree. I think it's pretty evident that Biden wasn't even fit when he was running for president or whatever, if you call that really a campaign. I'm not really sure. Um, is there anything you'd like to add before we wrap up the interview, Dr. Creighton? Anything that I missed? Uh, I don't think so. There's a there's a lot here. Uh, obviously, I go into it in some more detail w- within my book. But you know, there's a lot that goes even beyond my book. So, it's a big topic and it's a big quagmire. And God help us all. <laughs> yeah, God help us all is definitely true. But it's an excellent book. I really think it's important for the public to really see the underlying psychology of these people outside of just kind of their political rhetoric. I think it's really vitally important. I think your book does an excellent job of really analyzing and laying out in a much clearer fashion uh, all of these these psychological impulses and ideas that uh, the progressive or obsessional elites have right now. So I highly recommend the book. Again, the title of the book is Never Trump, Why Obsessional Elites Are Undermining the Future of America, published May 11th, 2021 by Dr. Richard Creighton. Dr. Creighton, thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you. All right. Take care. All right. So that'll go.